Welcome to the 360 Justice Podcast, where criminal justice leaders talk about how they are solving tough social infrastructure issues like aging facilities, insufficient funding, inadequate staffing, and an ever-changing political climate. Here's your host, Eli Gage. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Eli Gage, and I wanted to thank you for tuning in to our first episode of the 360 Justice Podcast. Uh, today, I have two esteemed colleagues on the line, Mr. Robert Glass and Joe Lee, both of CGL. And we wanted to talk a little bit today about kind of what's happened in the past, you know, what's happening currently, and maybe even try to dive into what we think might happen in the future. My guest today, Joe Lee, is an is a Auburn War Eagle with an engineering degree and has been in our market now, Joe, how long? How long have you been doing this? Since 1981, 39 years. That was the year I graduated from high school. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Makes me feel a lot better. Uh, and Robert Glass, a uh, University of Oregon duck with an architectural degree from the University of Idaho that um, I know, Bob, you've told me several times that you're now tearing down a lot of the justice facilities that you built. Uh, as a kid fresh out of college? There's been a few, yes, yeah, since 1979. So okay, I'm older than Joe, I guess. Guys, I wanted to, I wanted to start with, um, <clears throat> interestingly, this month is eight years since we, uh, with the help of the private equity division of Hunt, the Hunt companies in El Paso, went out and bought six different companies in seven months and did what I think is probably the first and maybe not the last roll up in the criminal justice market. Uh, two of those companies were companies that you each own. Joe, tell me a little bit about what's changed for you at CGL and, and uh, how are things different now than they were say eight years ago? Well, I think we um, have the resources now to do anything in the market that anybody could possibly ask us to do from planning early, very, very early planning, operational planning all the way through facility maintenance and even leasing and owning facilities back to the government. So it's a full menu of services that a client can pick from or that we can deliver all at one time. And the main goal is that we deliver the best facilities with the best value to our clients that they can have a full 50-year design life too, so they get a better building from the very beginning. Nothing I hate worse than hearing somebody say, well, it's been that way since it was built. In our particular case, we can, we can eliminate the errors of the past and eliminate the errors that people have seen from the very beginning. Hey, Bob, going back to you, you sold us your business slightly after the roll-up of the primary Carter Goble associate, Carter Goble Lee, roll-ups in, I think, July of 2012. How's life different for you now? You know, I was, I was thinking back as Joe was talking about that. I think there's two things. First of all, uh, the planning things is what I've always done. But what's nice now is to be able to do this planning work with all those guys you competed with for 25, 30 years, because they're just like friends to you as you were competing throughout the years. The second thing is, is to have the, the 360 breadth of knowledge now, particularly the maintenance group. You know, it's some, those guys have been vital to us to expand our planning through facility conditions assessment, even to expand our design through their knowledge of the equipment and things. So I think it's, 
it's given me at least a more well-rounded experience now. Well, what's fun is uh, engaging with a client early on in a project and being able to bring all the the information solutions that they're looking for from the very beginning all the way through. The maintenance business, I think, took a lot of pride in the fact that we had other capabilities and the planning capabilities, design capabilities, and really uh, let that shine through through client satisfaction, through bragging about the company to other clients, and demonstrating a real desire to make things better for those that we uh, work for. We talked a little bit ago about, um, and I tease you both about being so old that you're tearing down the buildings you built 30 years ago, but what do you think that the state of the criminal justice infrastructure in the United States is right now? Well, there's uh, around 950 state prisons in the United States of America right now. 570 of them were built between 1980 and 2000. And most of those have not been maintained well. So, um, so they're not in good shape. Um, when we did uh, the work in Alabama, we found that using the facility condition or correctional facility index that we developed, that all of them, uh, all their prisons uh, in the state needed replacing. And what that means is, is that it, it would cost more to renovate it and bring it back up to speed than it would be to uh, build new. So every state in 2008 recession went through a downtick on the revenues and maintenance is usually the first thing that gets hit from a funding standpoint when the state loses revenues. And so all the states got hit. So it's not just uh, Alabama, it's, um, it's all the states in, in the union are, are suffering from lack of funding and lack of good maintenance on their, on their prisons. And they also don't really fit the profile, and I'll let Bob um, tag on that of, of the inmates. No, and Joe's right. You know, in the, in the 80s, I even hate to say late 70s, I won't go back that far, but in the early 80s and up through the early 90s, uh, county jails and state prisons, all of our facilities, we built these facilities around an inmate profile at that time, almost looking back on now, too restrictive on that profile. We built probably 60% dorms in many cases in the jails and prisons. And, and now as we're waking up into a new generation of inmates where we've let all the lighter custody inmates out, we, uh, we now need a different kind of prison. They're not adaptable. We, we made, as a group, the Justice Architects made a, a poor choice of not making adaptable buildings that could change over time. So that's, that's our big push forward in this group now is to make sure things we do are adaptable. But wouldn't you say that in our industry, that's going to be an ever-changing model? I mean, the, the, the beds are different now. The people that are in prison, whether it be women, aged, young people, that's going to be constant change. It, it is. I, I think the one constant, the one change that we're going to see that probably won't change back as the pendulum swings, I'm not sure we'll ever uh, see the reincarceration of those lighter lighter custody inmates, the, the, the low-risk low felons, the, the non-violent people. I don't think they'll ever come back. So I think, I think what we, we are doing as a group now is going to move forward into the future. The next generation is much better. So, Bob, tell me about some of the stuff 
the work that we've done, let's say since 2012, as we've done this roll up, we've combined these companies together, we've got a different offering, arguably, and we've actually been involved in some pretty interesting projects since then. Tell us a little bit about that. No, I, I think the, the staff we've got now, uh, with the capabilities we have, and, a, and a really a good example is when we do planning work now for a jurisdiction that, that needs a building, we, we have operational staff sitting in the same room with us. Uh, so as we're planning the spaces, the operational staff, we're talking about staffing those spaces. So at the end of our planning phase, we know exactly how much staff goes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take to run that, which allows us to probably into what Joe really wants to talk about here shortly, I know, but we're able to talk about total cost of ownership for the first time at the early stages before we actually design a building. We know how big it is. We know how many staff are going to run it. And with Joe's capabilities and groups, we know what it's going to cost to, to operate this building for the next 30 years. So the client can make an informed decision before they even start the design building for the first time. Joe Lee, what is total cost of ownership? Total cost of ownership is looking at the whole system of not only the building itself, but delivering the services to the inmates and managing the staff within the building, managing the inmates within the building. So it, in, it involves everything from staffing, as Bob was talking about, to uh, energy and the cost of maintenance, the cost of replacing equipment through the life cycle of the prison. It includes every cost center that would go into a typical business software that you would see in a state. When we looked at Alabama as an example, we looked at the staffing model for the existing prisons versus a staffing model if we replaced those prisons with newer and better prisons and did some consolidation. But as we looked at that, not only the staffing, but we looked at how much it would cost to deliver energy to each one of those prisons versus the old prisons, we looked at the maintenance cost, we looked at every every cost center in order to come up with a solution. And I'll give you a couple of examples that are in the minute category. On a jail we did in uh, Georgia, we made a change while they were pouring the foundations and the slab to add a curb to all the corridors within the building where there was going to be cart traffic to prevent carts that were being driven by inmates and not from hitting the walls, which would cause a paint and patch requirement. When we did the calculation of how much that saved uh, by putting that curb in, while we were pouring all the other uh, concrete work on that building, it was somewhere around $200,000 a year. So to think about something that minute and, and how it can save money for 30 years is where we excel. Uh, in the case of Alabama, we were looking at the cost of their energy and uh, they were spending over $2 a square foot on electrical cost. And we ended up setting a target at $1.03 to come back with a more efficient system. To tell you where that $1.03 came from, it came from that same facility, of that jail that we opened in 2000, almost 20 years ago. And where we did all the calculations to determine what the cost of energy would be for a central energy plant. And we set a target for the engineers and the contractors to hit back then at like a dollar four, I think. And they hit it. And not only did we save money compared to the old jail, but we also saved money with buildings around uh, the jail because we did a master metering 
job and did actually went and negotiated with the power company for the client. So when we look at total cost of ownership, it, it looks at everything and there is a lot of detail that we have staff that can do the staffing models like Bob was talking about to look at that savings and we can have guys that specialize in energy to look at that savings and it goes all the way up and down the, the cost sheet. So Bob, going back to the question of, you know, kind of what's, what's transpired since 2012, obviously Alabama's come up and that's a sweet spot for us because I think we're uniquely qualified to help that state. Hawaii comes to mind, Bob, I believe that the work that we're doing on the women's prison is the first public safety project that they've done in 20 years. Since 1983, I did the last one. So it's, uh, it's been longer than 20 years. And, and the other one really that comes to mind, if I can take a minute, is the Maricopa County Intake Center. That's a brand new intake center, a brand new way of doing business that's never been, never been done before in a large jurisdiction. Uh, you know, Maricopa County, Phoenix, is, uh, intakes about 300 inmates a day. It's a, it's a big intake center. And they, the, it's a whole new way of doing that inside of a building that's totally adaptable. They could remodel the whole thing tomorrow. There's not a single wall that's going to get in the way. So we've given them an adaptable building for the first time. And it's a large jurisdiction. It's going to be very heavily toured. And it's, uh, they're very proud of the building. And they'll tell you they're very proud of CGL's involvement and, and the operational aspects of it. Because we had our operations guys there the whole time talking about staffing. It's been through some... Uh, interesting times with the with the county as they prepared to open it and staff it, but it uh, the staffing numbers we gave them are the numbers they're using right now, and they're very proud of it. It it actually became for a while, in fact, it still might become a, a COVID center, in, in between getting open now as an intake center. So it's again, it's an adaptable building. They're looking at it's a lot of different uses could happen. So that's that's what I'm I'm really kind of excited about is we're doing these new things for jurisdictions. We're helping them for the future. We're just not helping solve their problem now. We're helping them for the next 20 years. When you talk about kind of unique delivery, it reminds me of Wayne County right now, where, as, as we all know, it was during the coronavirus was, was kind of peaking. It's a very unique project. And I, I would shout out to Jay Shandor, who in the midst of the coronavirus got on an airplane and flew, moved back to Wayne County to help on that project. And, uh, that's a very different delivery model as well. So another project uniquely delivered, I would say, is the Travis County Courthouse. Uh, I think the technical term would be a progressive design build, correct, Bob? It is, yes. It's uh, one of the newer models that the Design Build Institute of America is now uh, pushing as, the, as the, the model choice. And we did that with uh, Gensler, Hensel Phelps, and, uh, and Hunt. And it, I think it's... It's turning out very well. We, we've all had, I think, I think everybody's been very proud of that building. It's coming up nice out of the ground. The speed by which that was delivered was kind of unique in our market right now. Very unique for a complicated courthouse building, yes. It, uh, th those drawings were delivered to the contractor in uh, just a little over six months. And it's, so it's very fast. So let's fast forward a minute, not to get into predicting the future, but we, I think at CGL, are uniquely positioned to, to help our clients as they migrate through this obviously new world, new work environment in terms of the design where it meets the maintenance. 
uh, Joe mentioned to me the idea of mechanical rooms outside of the dorms, uh, outside of the security areas, et cetera, et cetera. So what has CGL been doing to identify those design changes that need to happen up front in anticipation of something like the coronavirus in the future? You know, it was interesting when I started hearing some of those issues coming up from our maintenance group because, and not to to the horn or anything, but over the past, gosh, close to 40 years now, uh, to have an out, outside access to the mechanical room to me is just the, the standard thing you should do. And what our maintenance group is running into is a series of buildings where architects didn't do that. And uh, now the maintenance staff has got to go inside of housing areas during this uh, COVID time to maintain air hunting units, which is not the best thing for our staff. So it's... Uh, Joe's got much more firsthand knowledge of that. I, I just think it's uh, it's too bad an owner, a client doesn't realize they can get better. All right, and I, you know, I think looking at how um, groups of inmates and groups of officers are managed and the circulation and and how they move from one spot to the other coincides with how you move maintenance staff in and out and, and try not to get too many people in contact with other people. So it's a whole new dynamic. We've always had a, a sensitivity towards eliminating mob-like behavior by reducing the number of, of big groups in a prison and breaking them into smaller groups. But now we've got to pay attention to how we deliver food service to those same inmates and medical services so they're not in large groups or in close contact with each other. So it's, it's gonna be a, a challenge and we're uniquely qualified to help with that challenge because we have so much knowledge of how these buildings actually operate. So let me switch gears in kind of the final part of this podcast. And what do you see going forward? Uh, Where does this market go? Obviously funding is going to be a problem. There's some CARES money that's trickling into the counties. I think people are wondering, do these projects stop? Do they get funded? The problem is not going away while the tax base is. So as a guess, because nobody could obviously has a crystal ball here, but what happens now to the end of the year and what happens this time next year? Good question. Our, our, uh, our work with some of the larger counties now, right now, probably, I think we're beginning to understand from jurisdictions and from our statisticians that are projecting inmate population that will return to the pre-COVID numbers late this year in December. And that's, that's my opinion a little bit, but I think we'll return back to those numbers. I think the issue is going forward from there. How, how do we handle the period of time in the next year to 14 months? A lot of jurisdictions are looking at the building projects they, they had on the books as keeping them on the books because they feel that it keeps uh, economic stimulus, keeps people employed and going. Some jurisdictions are looking at doing business differently. State of Massachusetts, their courts program is looking at, do we need to build as big now anymore? Now that we've been through this, now that we've looked at alternative ways to handle court proceedings, should we take a look at how we do courthouses? And so, I, and, and the nice thing is we're, we're doing two of those. We're at the forefront, the state's saying, can you help us figure out how to do courthouses differently for the future? So I think we're going to be right at the forefront of looking at a lot of different jails and prisons and intake centers and things, and how do you change those for the future? What do they look like in the future? I'm not sure anybody has the answer right now, but I think we have the best staff to be able to sit with an owner and client and figure it out. 
Well, tagging on to that, I think it's uh, also states and counties are going to start looking at what's the right number of inmates and type of inmates they should be incarcerating and not to incarcerate those they shouldn't be incarcerating. And what's the right level of funding for a the infrastructure? You know, there's going to be, like there was in Europe and Canada, a rude awakening that it's more expensive not to maintain the infrastructure they have and when they build new infrastructure, it's vitally important to get something that is economically feasible and sustainable for them to maintain. So I think it's going to tick up the kind of quality that, that we want to see across the nation and in other places so that you can still provide the services, but at the, at the lowest number possible. I think what this does is give our operational planners a real chance to sit with clients and look at the way forward now. Yeah, I think we have the best chance of building what the future looks like. And in Dallas County right now, in Dallas, Texas, we're looking at a way with the county to uh, help them use some of the, the CARES Act money to provide some early planning and changes to the intake center, to their front door of the facility, and, and do it the right way, not just set up a tent and kind of do it partially, but really, really figure out what's the right thing to do going forward now with, with this, because this is not going to go away. So how do we, how do we, how do we intake two or 300 people in a day and keep some social distance to make the same work better for us? So it's, uh, we're helping them in that regard to try to use federal grant monies. We're helping them identify other funding. We're obviously looking at alternative methods of funding as, as in the Alabama model, but also other jurisdictions are saying, are there ways you can help us identify those? Uh, Colorado County is asking us to, to now come down to a study to help them figure out what are the best ways to fund? What are our options? Uh, they don't know. So again, they're turning to us to ask us. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate your time. We are going to try and do a monthly podcast. And, you know, I think it gives us a, a unique opportunity to reach out to some of the leaders in this industry and, and hear what's going on. And uh, hopefully it's informational. I would invite people that are interested in being on the podcast to email me because I'm looking for good help. And um, you should be able to find us on most of the major podcasting channels. So thanks again, guys, and uh, appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to the 360 Justice Podcast. To see today's show notes and relevant resources related to today's topic, or to make suggestions on future topics and guests for our show, visit our podcast page at www.cglcompanies.com.